Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode three, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1974 Canadian holiday slasher, Black Christmas. Those are my favorite kinds of slashers, to be really honest. It was written by... A. Roy Moore and Timothy Bond, and directed by Bob Clark. The film stars Olivia Hussey, John Saxon, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin, Lynn Griffin, and Keir D'Elia. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Also, at the time of this recording, we still haven't seen the new 2019 Black Christmas, so just keep that in mind as you listen. Yes. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Writer A. Roy Moore got the idea to write Black Christmas after reading about a series of murders that happened in Montreal, Canada a few years earlier, as well as the babysitter and the man upstairs urban legend. Ew. Yeah. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) He shopped around his script, which was titled Stop Me at the time. (laughs) Stop me. I can't stop killing. (laughs) But many producers felt that the story was far too graphic. It wasn't until it reached the hands of director Bob Clark, who would later be known for another Christmas movie called A Christmas Story. Maybe you've heard of it. (laughs) What? Yes. God almighty. (laughs) It wasn't until it reached Bob Clark's hands that Black Christmas found a home. According to the Wikipedia article for Black Christmas, quote, film producers Harvey Sherman and Richard Schouten had Timothy Bond rewrite the script to give it a university setting. Clark, who had felt the original script was too much of a straightforward slasher film, made several alterations in dialogue and also incorporated humorous elements into the film, particularly the drunkenness of Barb and Mrs. Mack, who Clark based on his aunt, unquote. So according to Matthew Jackson, quote, according to co-producer Jerry Arbied, Olivia Hussey, who plays the final girl, Jess, told him that she'd been informed by a psychic that she would be involved in a film in Canada that would make a lot of money. Since Black Christmas was being filmed in Toronto, she believed it to be the film the psychic was referring to, unquote. Most of the locations were scouted by Clark himself, while additional photography was filmed at the University of Toronto, which I'd like to visit that university at some point. I'm not that far from it from where I live now. I know. It looks beautiful. It does look beautiful. So according to Matthew Jackson again, quote, the calls were mixed by composer Carl Zittrer, and the voices were done by actor Nick Mancuso, who auditioned with his back to Clark so the director would hear rather than see the character. 
According to Mancuso, one of the ways he achieved a particularly creepy vocal effect was to perform the calls upside down. Unquote. Ooh, weird. Weird. Yeah. Mancuso later recalled, quote, I did the voice actually standing on my head to compress the thorax to give it that kind of weird and spooky sound, unquote. Moore and Clark concocted a backstory for the killer, and they were determined to keep the killer's true identity and backstory a secret from everyone, including the cast and crew. Apart from the names Billy and Agnes and something about abuse and killing a baby, nothing else is really known. Moore and Clark rightly believed that this ambiguity would be scarier. In the 2006 remake, however, they go more into this backstory. So if you're interested in learning about it or seeing it or whatever, just watch that film. It's not very good, but it's there if you want to watch it. (laughs) Black Christmas was released in Canada in October of 1974 to rave reviews and a very successful box office. It would be released in the United States a few months later under the title Silent Night, Evil Night because its U.S. distributor, Warner Brothers, was afraid that American audience would mistake it for a black exploitation film. Of course, none of us here in the States call it Silent Night, Evil Night. It is Black Christmas here. Mm-hmm. So it's so funny that that name didn't stick at all. However, American audiences were not so receptive to the film. It was a box office bomb in the States, and critics ripped it to shreds. Variety called the film, quote, a bloody, senseless kill-for-kicks feature that exploits unnecessary violence in a university sorority house operated by an implausibly alcoholic ex-hoofer. Its slow-paced, murky tale involves an obscene telephone caller who apparently delights in killing the girls off one by one, even the hapless house mother, unquote. Yikes. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Yikes, yikes, yikes. Um, Okay, so overall, A Black Christmas grossed over $4 earning more than its budget of $620,000. Wow. Yeah, so not surprisingly, when released in the UK, the C word was removed, as well as several other sexual references during the killer's phone calls. Which is weird, because I feel like that's a very, like, UK thing. Like, they're super free about their, like, um, speech in movies now. That's so I feel funny. like sex has always been okay for the UK, but violence hasn't been. Oh, true. Okay. And so does feel so with with all this with the sex stuff taken out, it feels I'm not surprised, but at the same time, I guess I kind of am because I'm like, I'm surprised like all the violence was still in there. Yes. Weird. If you're in the UK, let us know what you think about that. Hmm. To this day, Black Christmas remains a recognizable staple in Western slasher films, coming to the theaters years before John Carpenter's influential Halloween. According to Olivia Hussey, comedian Steve Martin told her that it was his favorite horror film and that he has seen it many, many times. Oh, my God. (laughs) Singer Elvis Presley told Hussey that he and his family liked to watch it on Christmas. (laughs) Jeez. After Elvis's passing a few years later, Presley's wife and daughter continued the tradition and still to this day watch Black Christmas every year. So two remakes have been made, one in 2006, which we talked about earlier, and that flopped terribly. And it actually came out uh, about a year before Bob Clark tragically passed away in a car accident. 
this new one came out on December 13th, 2019. So according to critic Anton Bittel, quote, made at a time when there were as yet no fixed rules for the slasher subgenre, here anything goes, and the survival of neither virgin nor even final girl comes guaranteed, unquote. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Sorority sisters Claire, Jess, Barb, and Phyllis throw a party at their sorority house in celebration of their upcoming Christmas break. While the party goes on, they receive a strange and obscene phone call from a man threatening to sexually assault and kill them. The girls, uneasy, hang up the phone and prepare for bed. Poor Claire is the first victim in a string of murders perpetrated by an unknown assailant who has snuck his way into the house during their party. She meets her attacker in her closet as she packs in preparation to return home, and she is suffocated to death, and her body is dragged up to the attic by the killer, whose face remains unseen. Claire's father shows up to take her home from break and is appalled to find that the sorority house is run by an alcoholic house mother who doesn't seem to have the best handle on the girls. We learn that the sorority sisters are very much a part of the free love movement of the 60s and 70s, so when Claire's disappearance is reported to the police by her father, the house mother, and her sisters, the police seem indifferent and tell the concerned parties that she probably shacked up with someone. Meanwhile, Jess is dealing with troubles of her own as she tries to tell her boyfriend Peter, a concert pianist, that she is pregnant and plans to have an abortion. This angers Peter, but Jess is determined to make her own decisions. While Jess and Peter contend with that issue, Claire's father continues the search, along with the rest of the townsfolk and sorority sisters. A search party is also on the lookout for a 13-year-old girl who had gone missing around the same time as Claire, and they stumble upon her body in a local park. Back at the house, the killer lures the house mother, Mrs. Mack, up to the attic, where she discovers Claire's body and she becomes his next victim. During all of this, the sorority house receives several more disturbing phone calls, which are all answered by Jess, and the caller seems to know the details of the girls' lives, like Jess's impending abortion. Jess contacts the police in order to stop the calls and trace where they are coming from, and the police discover that the calls are coming from inside the house. The same night, Barb and Phyllis are killed by the intrusive stranger in their home. The police tell Jess to leave as they're concerned that she's trapped in the home with a killer, but Jess goes looking for Phyllis and Barb to warn them and discovers their bloodied bodies lying together in Barb's room. She is chased through the house by the killer until she becomes trapped in the cellar. There, she is confronted by an angry Peter and she kills him with a fire poker after he breaks into the cellar and chases her. The police discover their bodies laying together after Jess passes out following the attack. They leave her asleep in the sorority house and decide that Peter is, in fact, the murderer. However, the killer is still in the home with Jess asleep inside, along with the undiscovered bodies of Claire and Mrs. Mack in the attic, and Jess's fate and the identity of the real killer remain unknown as the film cuts to the credits. Oh, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. You're welcome. So spooky. Oh, <laughs> So the Bechdel test, yes, it passes. It passes a few times, which is amazing. Lots of female friendships in this. Um, obviously, like some friendships are a little bit more toxic than others, but <laughs> and I'm talking about Barb here. We'll get to Barb. But um, yes, uh, lots of lots of talking about uh, something other than a man, which is nice. 
Uh, let's talk about Nancy's dream team test, though, because it's not good here. Oh, no. <laughs> so was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Surprisingly, no, it was not. Uh, was the film written, directed, or produced by a woman? Nope. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No, again, fail, 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 fail. Mm. So there's that. Let's get into our discussion. Let's talk about women's reproductive rights during the 1970s, feminism, and of course, the idea of final girls in Black Christmas. So according to Lenore Hipsher in her article, Black Christmas and Gender Roles in the 1970s Slasher Film, Quote, during the early 1970s, women's attendance in college began to rival men's. By the early 1980s, in fact, female college attendance had completely advanced beyond male attendance, and a growing resistance arose because of the implications that women attending college could hold for the nation. Many Americans felt that once women began educating themselves, they would gain too much power in the United States. Black Christmas reflects all of these social anxieties. The killer's actions throughout Black Christmas represent cultural anxieties about women attending college through the lens of the sorority. Sororities were the new family for college attending women, and this unsettled many Americans. Women now had sisters, not daughters, and their loyalties were now to academic ties rather than blood family. After the passing of Roe v. Wade, many Americans further worried that the legalization of abortion would lead to a drastic and negative change in the American concept of family. Black Christmas represented these 1970s anxieties and fears that Americans experienced at the dawning of a new sexual revolution. Many were fearful that women would take advantage of their legal rights and use abortion to dodge familial responsibilities and further their own careers, a worry that plays out in Black Christmas through Jeff's and her decision to get an abortion. In his essay, Return, Returning the Look, Eyes of a Stranger, Robin Wood states that, quote, violence against women movies have generally been explained as a hysterical response to 1960s and 1970s feminism, unquote. Black Christmas is direct evidence of Wood's claim, unquote. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Mm -hmm. It's very useful information, first of all, when looking at this film. But uh, Hipsher talks a lot about American politics and, um, and Americans like at the time of the 70s when this premiered. But if you recall from our intro, Black Christmas is actually a Canadian film. A Canadian film that did amazing in Canada and then terrible in the U.S., so that kind of makes sense when you look at the political state of America when it was released. Mm -hmm. I can kind of see why Americans maybe didn't like it. So let's look back at Roe v. Wade. So abortion became legal in the U.S. just one year before Black Christmas hit theaters in the States. However, starting in 1968, in Canada, abortion was only legal if you had a severe medical condition or the mother's life was at risk. So Canada wouldn't actually legalize abortion in full until 1988. Oh my God. So 14, right, for like 14 years after Black Christmas was released in Canada. 
That's bananas. Yeah. Can you imagine being a woman watching Black Christmas in Canada and seeing the main heroine freely discuss getting an abortion without having a medical issue? Like, that must have been wild. Because what a lot of people might not realize is that Canada wanted to become mainstream in the film industry. So a lot of their films were made with American audiences in mind. And we talked a bit about this in our episode about My Bloody Valentine, and the link is in the show notes if you're interested in that. Um, But yeah, that's why Jess talks about getting an abortion so freely, because the script was sort of stylized for American audiences. So yeah, that must have been wild for a Canadian woman to see that on screen. Well, and stuff like this really makes you stop and think about feminism and like bodily autonomy worldwide because we always think that everyone else is more progressive than America, at least like in, you know, small circles here, like amongst my friends and stuff like that. Like, you know, we think that American women also are extremely privileged and we totally are. But like that means that we have to lead the fight and like spread that kind of awareness, I guess. But before researching for this film, I never would have known like any of that about Canadian law. Like it really makes you reevaluate where the world was and is. And, you know, for me, when I think of Canada, like I think of universal health care, but like I would also categorize the choice to have an abortion as like a part of that universal health care. But obviously that wasn't always the case. And like, honestly, it wasn't that long ago. So it's just it's so crazy to me. I think like the first thing I thought of was no wonder this was so popular because it was presented in a way that made it seem normal. And I mean, it would take it would take almost 15 years before it did become normal in Canada. But I, there's a part of me that wonders what if this movie maybe helped kind of get that fire going, you know? So I don't know. So let's talk more about Jess. She is an extremely unique final girl in terms of horror tropes. Mm-hmm. For one thing, she isn't a virgin. She, along with her other sorority sisters, are sexually active. And not just that, but Jess is pregnant. And not just that, but she doesn't want to keep the fetus. According to Ryan Wu, quote, Jess unambiguously tells Peter that she can't give up on her dreams just because of his wants, unquote. Mm -hmm. She is steadfast in her decision, and even when Peter tells her and he doesn't ask her mind you he tells her that they are getting married she outright says i don't want to marry you (laughs) (laughs) yes girl yes so jess's character is sort of like a rejection of the virginal maternity role that was thrusted upon laurie strode's character in halloween Mm mm-hmm In Halloween, Lori fights the toxic domestic threat, Michael Myers, and rescues two children while using feminine yet phallic household tools. She uses knitting needles, a kitchen knife, and a clothes hanger. Now, Jess's weapon of choice is a fireplace poker. It's still phallic, yes, but let's look at it this way. Although Black Christmas takes place in a house, it's not a house run by a traditional family. It's a sorority house run by young, educated women and an older den mother. So 
I don't know about you, but traditionally, I imagine like a mother sitting by the fire and knitting while the father is the one stoking the fire. Now, I'm not saying that this is always the case. I'm just saying like in a traditional heteronormative sense, like that's a pretty common image, I think. Mm -hmm. But in a sorority house, there's no man stoking the fire. It's all women. So Jess's use of the poker speaks volumes here to me. Her home is invaded by a toxic man, but it's not a traditional home like Lori's, or at least the home that she's babysitting in. It's a house run solely by women. Keep this in mind because we're going to talk more about like the house and what it means later on. So let's also talk about Claire. Claire is the first victim of the film. Claire has a boyfriend, but it's unclear if she's had sex with him yet. Even though Barb kind of makes fun of her and says in regards to Claire that she knows a virgin when she sees one. Now, this is important because traditionally the virgin is the one that lives. If this had been any other slasher from the 70s or 80s, Claire would have been our final girl. Instead, we do a flip and reverse. Claire is the first one to go. (laughs) Now, what is also interesting and different is that her death isn't phallic in nature. She's suffocated with a plastic bag. She's then carefully brought upstairs to the attic of the sorority house, set in a rocking chair, and given a baby doll to hold. Now, in dreams, the attic of a house sometimes represents one's higher self, and these images of Claire with a baby doll and a rocking chair are very maternal in nature. So, with this in mind, we could argue that Claire is accomplishing her highest duty as a mother. However, Claire's bedroom is filled with images of peace, love, sex, and crudeness. The old lady, like giving the finger poster, for example. (laughs) So even if Claire is the tamest, quote unquote, of the sisters, she's still rebellious. I mean, her father is pretty shocked by the state of her room. So the killer forcing Claire into this virginal maternal role, even in death, is extremely demeaning. And it feels sacrilegious, especially since she's hidden in the attic, the place that represents one's higher self. So, if anything, we could look at the attic in this case as Billy's idea of the higher self. It's his playground where he has his quote-unquote new mother, Claire. If you think about it this way, it's even creepier, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And traditionally, also, like, attics are used to store remnants of the past, right? Like... It's the most practical place to keep antiques and, you know, that kind of thing because it's dry and the conditions are better or whatever. So this is the perfect place for the killer to preserve his ideas of what womanhood and motherhood should look like, which is a virginal female, motherly in nature, trapped within the home, taking care of the children. And similarly... Mrs. Mack is the quote-unquote mother of the sorority home, so she's also killed and stored in the attic with Claire. And these two women represent what would be considered like flawed or untraditional mothers because Claire is free and open with her sexuality and Mrs. Mack is an alcoholic, but both of them care for the others. Like they play a central role in the household as a kind of glue. So when they go missing, the house just like, unravels and the lives within it descend into chaos. Yes, that is such a great observation. That's so true because Claire's disappearance really is the spark that kind of gets everybody like worried about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Okay, so lastly, let's discuss Barb. She is the most crass sister in the house. (laughs) Arguably, she's a hot mess, but she's also very sympathetic. (laughs) True. Yeah, she has asthma, and her mother doesn't like spending time with her. So Barb is extremely lonely, and it seems that she uses drinking as a way of escape and makes fun of others as like a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. And even though she does have some internal misogyny, she's still likable because we know why she is the way that she is. And this is huge because when you look at other slasher films, this type of character always dies, but she's never likable. You're usually rooting for this character to get killed. Not Barb, though. She also seems to be, like, the most sexually knowledgeable of the group, which is interesting. But we never hear about or see a boyfriend or girlfriend, for that matter, uh, in her circle. Like, she doesn't, from what I recall from the film, she never talks about that. She only talks about, like, sexual experiences that she's had. But she doesn't have anyone, like, the other girls all have boyfriends. So, for all we know, Barb might actually be the only virgin, the only real virgin, among the sisters. Like, it could just be all talk. That is true. And Barb is also arguably the most androgynous of the group as well. She has a deep voice, and she drinks, and she smokes, and wears masculine clothing. She is also killed by a glass unicorn. Now, Think about who Barb is as a character, and I'll think about this unicorn, because this weapon might seem really random, and maybe it is, but you know me, I love finding meaning in random shit in movies, so (laughs) according to, and this is not a joke, according to (laughs) unicornsrule.com. Is this a Napoleon Dynamite spinoff website? Like, (laughs) what? According to unicornsrule.com, unicorns are strongly associated with the feminine and, as such, have traditionally appeared as a symbol of chastity. This is why it is often said that only a virgin can catch a unicorn, unquote. So, yeah, Barb is killed by this image of crystal clear purity, something that she is trying desperately to get away from. It sounds like we have like a traditional mother, maiden, and crone. Claire is the mother, and Jess is the maiden, and Barb is the crone. And I think that each of them offers a really unique perspective of this trifecta for the time period in which the film is released, because I feel like it encapsulates how women felt as the sexual revolution was taking place. Like, they were unsure and cautious, probably, but at the same time, very excited and assertive of this newfound liberation. And in films like this, it's made pretty clear that this is what it's actually like to be a woman living through radical change when it comes to our bodily autonomy. So I love these characters in this film. I really do. I think they were really well written. Yes, I think so as well. Um, And honestly, this film should have paved the way for women in horror films. Instead, Halloween, which came out, I think, like four years later, did that. So now we have virginal survivors and sexually liberated victims. In an episode from the podcast Horror Homeroom, where they talk about Black Christmas, Elizabeth Irwin and her co-host discuss how Black Christmas didn't catch on like Halloween did. And that's one of the huge reasons why people probably still ask women, like, why do you like horror films? It's so sexist. How could you watch it? (laughs) 
And um, I really agree with them there because even Carol J. Clover, who invented the term final girl, she doesn't discuss Black Christmas in her famous book about women in slasher films, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's almost criminal in my opinion. Yeah. It's so interesting that this film filled with liberated women fell apart almost. Yeah. Uh, and then Halloween, which we argue in our Halloween episode that, you know, Lori's Lori's maternal instincts are not something to judge. But I do wonder what would have happened if Black Christmas had caught on in the States. What would have happened to horror? Yeah. I mean, I'm, it, like you said, I'm really surprised that it didn't do better in the States because I almost like this more than Halloween. I do too i actually like this film more than halloween as well yeah i think it's more believable and it's the the women in it not that i don't like the women in halloween but they are more likable in this film they're more likable because they're more realistic yes yes exactly they have qualities that make them likable but a lot of their qualities are flawed like a lot of their personal qualities are are flawed qualities and i think that when balanced correctly that is very important because and we've talked about this before when women are put on these pedestals as these virginal angels that can be extremely damaging yeah to women watching the film so i think you can kind of as a woman watching black christmas you can kind of relax Mm-hmm. You don't feel like your gender has been put on a pedestal. You can kind of feel like, oh, like I can like get an abortion if if it's something that I need to do personally. And you don't feel like you're a demon. Yes, <laughs> you know? exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about the killer Billy as a dangerous social media troll. Oh, God. So according to Aja Romano, quote, the caller degrades and insults the women and then starts threatening amid a lot of incoherent garbling to straight up kill them. And it all makes the killer seem literally troll-like, an inhuman beast barely capable of human language, hiding not below them as trolls traditionally do, but over them as they go about their business. His relationship to the women is also troll-like. From the brief hints we get of his psyche, we can't seem to decide whether he views them as dehumanized sexual objects or matronly figures who have failed in their motherly duties towards him. He's pretty much the standard internet misogynist brought to life. Their anonymity, once the crucial factor that allowed internet culture to proliferate freely and unashamedly, has become a weaponized feature that allows trolls to multiply and harass their targets more effectively. We can no longer treat trolling as harmless behavior, even if it shows up disguised as ineffective ranting, unquote. And (laughs) yeah, so to quote really quick, uh, the blog entitled Black Christmas, Do You See What I See?, Much like the harassers women deal with online, quote, our killer Billy could be anyone, could be anywhere, and he is free to change forms, unquote. Ooh, gross. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So here's a weird coincidence that I want to point out when it comes to the incel community as well. Um, There's a thing that they call the black pill. And I just think that it's funny that this film is called Black Christmas and the title like totally coincides with the theory. So tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. So according to Wikipedia, quote, the concept of the black pill distinguishes incels from the men's rights movement 
and their popular reference to the red pill, an allusion to the dilemma of the movie The Matrix, where the protagonist must choose to remain in a world of illusion, taking the blue pill, or to see the world as it really is, taking the red pill. In the context of men's rights activism, taking the red pill means seeing a world where women hold power over men. The black pill, on the other hand, refers to hopelessness. (laughs) It also holds that one's personality is not very important. Mm. So... I just think it's kind of funny because like we never get to see the real killer and we don't know what kind of person he is. And as far as we know, he's never caught. But I think it's safe to say that he could definitely be compared to an incel. Like a lot of the time you get those like sad mopey guys in the incel community who are basically like my existence is futile because females won't pay attention to me. And like the bottomless pit of despair is so deep. So (laughs) I just thought that was like kind of funny i had never heard about that before and when i was researching this film it like popped up in one of the searches and i was like what the heck is this that is so amazing i had never heard of that either i'm not gonna go into what the real backstory is for billy like we learn about it in the 2006 black christmas but Mm -hmm. um i think that the fact that he desperately wants their attention and he's calling them and he's saying like things to them that upset them is clear incel actions absolutely if he wanted to just kill them because he hates them like i guess compared to michael myers he would just do it but he taunts them he makes them feel bad for who they are and that is super frightening It's not just with Billy, though. Like, we see it in Peter, too. And uh, it's it's because they don't get their way. And they're just so wrapped up in this idea that women owe them something. It's so gross. It's so gross. Funny you should mention Peter, because that's our next topic of discussion, the men of Black Christmas. Mm. So I think we can all agree that Peter, Jess's boyfriend, is a huge dick. Yeah. The way that he treats Jess throughout the film is extremely toxic. Yeah, absolutely. He shows up unexpected to her home. He calls her crying, saying that she's killing the baby, which isn't fair to her. Like, way to be insensitive, Peter, you big ass dumb idiot. (laughs) And he blames her for him screwing up his piano recital. Come on, man. Like, own up to your own shittiness because. Oh, my God. Like, he sucks at playing the piano. Like, that recital is so bad. <laughs> it is so bad. And I love also, too, when Jess is talking to the police and she's like, he's an artist, so he's kind of sensitive. And you're like, Jess, stop making excuses for him. <laughs> yeah, like, he's just a shitty guy. Like, and whatever. So he also threatens her and he says things like, you'll be sorry or you'll regret this. And he calls her a selfish bitch. And he never, like I said earlier, he doesn't give her the option of marriage. He flat out tells her that they are getting married. Oh, I'm sorry, Peter. I wasn't aware that it's freaking 1876. Like, <laughs> Jesus. So Jess's sorority sister, Phyllis, also tells her that she's never liked Peter. Ever. And I, that was such that's such a throwaway line because it's done in a way where she's like, Phyllis says something like, well, you know that I don't really like Peter kind of thing. And I was like, oh, oh, that is a red flag. That's a serious red flag because if your girlfriends are having a hard time with your boyfriend, mm, Mm -hmm. 
something's wrong here. They see something that you don't. And like just mentions how Peter is not usually like this, that he's so gentle, right? And oh, he's just an artist. But honestly, like you truly don't know who you are dating until you see how they handle themselves when they are confronted with huge issues. Oh my God, so true. And Peter proves to not be sweet and gentle, but extremely unpredictable and even violent. And this is proven when he destroys the piano. Because mm-hmm. it's, and this is the other thing too, it's not his piano that he's destroying. I, I assume that belongs to the university. Yeah. So he has, n- he's destroying other property. He's destroying someone else's property, basically. Yep. Yep. Oh, you know what? I didn't even think about like that could totally be a metaphor for Jess. I put so much time and effort into this and. Like, why can't it just, like, work the way I want it to? And, like, it's almost like he is blaming the piano for his shitty playing. And he's also, like, blaming Jess for not wanting to keep his baby. It's so absurd. You're absolutely right. Like, he can't handle the fact that Jess is in control of her body and that she is not willing to listen to him. He's obviously threatened by her freedom. So it's no wonder that when confronted by Peter in the basement at the end of the film, Jess is highly suspicious of him. Mm -hmm. He comes towards her and he seems nice, but he's like being weird. He's been weird throughout the whole film. So she kills him with the poker and she doesn't ask questions. She just does it. And yes, whether Peter was the one making the calls and killing the other women or not, probably not. He was still a toxic threat to Jess's existence. And what's also really sad and scary about that ending is that metaphorically, no matter how many toxic people you are able to conquer, there are always going to be more out there looking to harm you for one reason or another. Yeah. And I mean, I I really think that this is one of the first horror films, like I guess mainstream horror films to shed light on that particular aspect. And that's why it remains such a timeless piece in a way. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I want to like connect the most famous quote from the film to all of this. Uh, the calls are coming from inside the house, right? So let's go back and we're going to look at the house as a, a metaphor for ourselves again. Um, sometimes the things that we fear the most are within our own circle. And according to Aja Romano, quote, if we consider that the house at the center of every horror movie is almost always a metaphor, then Black Christmas argues that if we want to know how hate and violence spread, we need to stop looking for a generic evil outsider and search for the source in our own homes instead, unquote. Ooh. And this is like Peter. Peter is this threat within the circle that just keeps thinking is you know, like, oh, he's fine. He's okay. Like, she keeps making excuses for him. Oh, and you know, another thing that I didn't even think about, too, is that, like, there is a piece of Peter literally inside of her. Yes. And she's like, I gotta get this shit out. Yes, absolutely. She wants to sever ties with the toxicity in every way possible. And uh, she almost wants to do it. She almost wants to do it subconsciously. Yes. I also kind of want to talk about the policemen in this film. Um, They are all men and they are completely inept. Oh, my God. It's so frustrating. Um, First of all, they don't ever once check the attic. Like, honestly, what the hell? (laughs) Second, they don't take the calls seriously. Yeah. They don't even take Claire's disappearance seriously until her boyfriend shows up in his very stylish Canadian fur coat. 
<laughs> my favorite thing. <laughs> they, oh my they, God. they don't take her, her disappearance seriously until he shows up in that damn fur coat and he demands that they look for her. Oh my God. And they also don't take the mother of the missing girl seriously either. Like this is like a side story that happens in the film where um, Claire is missing, but also like a, I think like a 13 year old girl is missing as well. And like they, like they kind of mention it a few times, like they find the little girl's body in a park or something. Um, but they don't take the mother seriously either for this. So even like the very minor side stories that are in here um, are not taken seriously by the men in this film. Yeah, it's insane. Like, and it's put in there to show that, like, they, the police aren't just acting like this because it's, like, a college-age woman who they think is, like, screwing around with some other guy. Like, they don't even take the disappearance of a very young girl seriously. And they, like, brush the mother off. Like, it's nothing. Right. And it's so sad because once Claire's boyfriend... I think he knows some of the people in the police force and that's why they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, of course we'll help. Oh my God, it's so frustrating. But they start the search and then they find the little girl instead of Claire. So like the mother was right the entire time. Like her daughter really was missing and hurt and then sadly found dead. So yeah, it's... Well, ugh. it it almost feels like this film is like taking a stab <laughs> at no. the way that <laughs> at the way that like police handle these cases back then but it's still so relevant now like it's ahead of its time in that way because it addresses the issues of victim blaming or just chalking it up to like a, f- a young freewheeling college student going missing because she shacked up with her boyfriend like i wish that we could say we've come a long way since then And like many police agencies have, but the reality is that there's no sense of urgency or alarm in many, many cases. And the other super frustrating thing about like, at least for me, that I felt when I was watching this film was that nobody was taking it seriously until a man showed up to the police station. Hockey playing lumberjack, where's my girlfriend? And they're like, oh, geez, I guess we better we better uh, lock this search down it's like take your sweet time nobody's gonna die it's okay (laughs) well and it's so sad because claire is already dead at this point and claire is never found in within the within the logic of the film she's never found so that is even more frustrating because it's like even though they do start to take it seriously they still don't use every single resource that's available to them like checking the attic (laughs) the women are asked to take care of everything themselves and um like i'm thinking of like how they tell Jess, like, you have to be the one to keep him on the line and you have to be the one to get out of the house and you have to be the one to do all the stuff to protect everything. And it's like, get over here and help me. <laughs> like, yes. I'm already, like, dealing with a lot of shit. Like, I would like your assistance, please. So, you know, it reminds me of certain people who are like, well, you're a feminist 
and you wanted equal rights, so don't ask for my help or like do it yourself or like people who compare <laughs> people who are like, oh, equal rights, equal fights. Like you're if we're equal, that means I can punch you. Right. It's like, oh, my God, I want to strangle somebody hearing that. That's honestly like what it feels like for the entirety of this film. Like the women only rely on themselves pretty much. And it's like you it doesn't have to be that way. Like you can be an ally you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's the whole part about equality. It's like, if a man was in trouble, a woman would try to help. Just like if a woman is in trouble, you would hope like a man would try to help. You know what I mean? It's like you would treat that person like they were a human and they don't do that. So, mm. so let's get into our final thought, which kind of connects what we we were just talking about. Um, Anti-feminist themes in Black Christmas? question mark Hmm. maybe Hmm. a lot of critics think that there are uh we'll talk about this though the gaze is mostly billy's right the killer but normally when this happens they kind of want you to feel sympathy or they kind of want you to you to be put into the characters uh, the killer's shoes um but to be honest i never i've never identified with this gaze ever and um i never identified with um michael myers pov ever either and i always identify with the women or the heroes in these films um in fact i think that's why billy's pov and black christmas is so incredibly disturbing because you feel out of touch and out of place when you're seeing things from his eyes and i think Like, I kind of feel like we're all Jamie from Halloween 5, where we're seeing what the killer is doing, but we're completely freaked out by it. So I don't think that the POV shots in this film are intended for us to be put into the killer's shoes. I think it's meant to heighten the disturbing factors of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Some critics have also complained that the only deaths in the film are of women, except for Peter, of course, which... Okay, I can kind of see the issue there because normally there are more women than men in horror films. So it makes sense that there are more women dying uh, just because there's more characters that are women. But in this case, there are more men in this film. Um, So it's a little upsetting that women are the only victims. But to kind of counter this whole idea that women are being killed more in Black Christmas than men, the fact that no one gives two shits about it is what makes it scary. Yes. Um, That's terrifying. So again, like we're not supposed to connect with the killer or even the police force in this film. We're supposed to be angry and frustrated that their toxicity is ruining the Christmas party. And all these women cannot have fun and go home and spend time with their families because the men in this film are complete idiots. And I I think that is why the women die in this and women aren't believed in this. Not because we're supposed to think that all these women are stupid or that women deserve to die quote-unquote so stupid but um it's because we're supposed to be mad we're supposed to be mad that they're all dying well what stands out to me about this film is that the women in it are incredibly strong but that doesn't mean that they aren't vulnerable at the same time like we have because they're being targeted first of all they're being targeted yeah we have strong women in the realm of feminism that are vulnerable to male toxicity because it exists like male toxicity is there unfortunately but however like it shows what happens when males who are supposed to be allies don't recognize that that toxicity in other males it's 
it's a joint effort to make sure that it's not perpetuated. And in Black Christmas, the cops act as if nothing is out of the ordinary and they laugh. And yes, they do. It's like laughing at rape jokes. Like when you laugh at something like that, it shows that in a weird way, you're okay with it, that you accept it as normal behavior. And, you know, I, of course, believe that laughter is a great way to break through barriers, but there's a time and place for it. And you probably shouldn't be cracking jokes when it comes to investigating the disappearance of women. And this film does a really good job at making an example of that. And I think it does a great service to feminism in showing the absurdity of it all. You know, I agree with you there. I think that if you are somebody who really likes true true crime and likes to see justice served, um, I think on a fictional level, Black Christmas, I think, would be enjoyable to somebody who likes true crime because a lot of real life issues with crime are really shown in this film yeah absolutely i i think it does do even though it's written and directed by men i personally i think that they did a really great job at showing like what happens when women aren't believed Okay, well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Ooh, happy holidays. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Christmas is tomorrow. This is coming out on Christmas Eve. So, oh, my gosh. I hope you all are having a wonderful time. I hope you are loved, and I hope you are with friends or family or you're in a safe place this holiday season because that's so important. Yes, yes. Merry crisis. Merry (laughs) Merry Chrysler. Um, so you guys, I know it's a little late for shopping, but, um, if you want to get any late gifts, don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that'll take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away patron gifts, and review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there too sometimes. So become a patron, won't you? Yeah, and you can also help support the show by following us on social media, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. Happy holidays, and we love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs>